0: It's already been a great morning. Let me do just a a little teaching today. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. It's a text that I think I needed and maybe we need this week. Uh, So let me give you a question. Some of you will discuss this in your life groups, in your small groups. Uh, But can you hear the difference between these two statements of uh, God, here is my heart Uh, please take my heart, care for my heart, protect my heart. There's that statement. And then there is the statement of, God, what is your heart and where is your heart and how can I get into your heart? Both are good statements. Uh, But the Christian life isn't just about God coming into your heart to protect you. It is also about us craving to know what the heart of God is and what the heart of God is beating for and how we get into it. So we're in a series right now that I've called Allegiance. It's a three-week series. Uh, allegiance is its something you give to a person, to a place, or to a mission. And allegiance to God um, is not just something that we get in the end. Allegiance to God is something that we get to live out uh, now. So today is, uh, as I said a few moments ago, it is Stand Sundays, formerly known as Orphan Sunday. Uh, th- this originated in Zambia, which I think is kind of cool because it's one of our our mission efforts, and it's something we have celebrated for a few years. And I think it's an important day because, at least for me, after the last few weeks, I've I needed something to kind of root me again in just the mission of God. What is it that God wants of His church, and how do we, pl- and when we pledge allegiance to God, it's not just to God's character; it's also to God's mission. Um, so open your Bibles at James 1, verse 26 and 27. This is a passage where I, I think some of you, before you were even flipping there, you knew this is a place that talks about widows and orphans. Uh, and what I want to show you today is it's more than just a statement about widows and orphans. There are a few phrases uh, that I want to help bring to your attention today. So uh, let, let's read it first. James 1, 26 and 27. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Uh, One of the reasons my wife, Casey, loves the book of James is that James doesn't really sugarcoat things. He kind of comes straight at you, you know, like your religion's really poor if you don't do these things. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world or to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There are three phrases that really captured me in this of what it means to live a life that James is calling like the religious life, a life that is devoted to the things of God. And the first thing in verse 26, and here are three things that I think are really important in, in this passage. One is um, a bridal tongue is what he begins with. What he begins with is not how you care for the marginalized, the disenfranchised widows and orphans. What he begins with is how you use speech. Now, James will build on this later on in James chapter 3 because apparently he's writing to people in this church who were struggling with this. that were using language in a way that was either tearing people down or it wasn't building others up. And so what he talks about a few times is that uh, the life of a Christ follower, you should be someone who is able to control uh, the words that flow out of you. Um, Ephesians 4 talks a lot about this, that when you grieve the Spirit of God, often what grieves the Spirit of God is how we use words. Um, now, uh, let me sit down as I say just a couple of things this morning, and and here's one of them. I think if, if James is writing today to us, it would not just be words that come out of our mouths, it would be words we use even on social media. Uh, I did a pretty good job this week on Tuesday and Wednesday staying on Facebook, but Thursday I got on and, uh, I, I was just trying to check out what's going on in the world. What are people talking about these days? All right, so, uh, the first few posts I read on Facebook. I sat there and I read them, and then I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I hope non-believers are not reading what some Christians are posting right now. And I, I thought that, and then my mind kind of went to this place, my heart went to this place of, sometimes I fear that social media and Facebook is where kingdom witness goes to die. Uh, and I don't want to beat this horse, Like I think you hear me talk about this quite a bit, whenever it comes to us posting on social media, it should have to pass a glory-to-God test because there are non-believers and people who may be struggling with their faith or are listening to words that are coming out of you. And one of the reasons James talks about words is apparently there are people using words. that's not edifying the body and it's not, it's not making the Christian witness look good in the community around you. And God is the one who models this better than anyone because there are times throughout Scripture when God uses words and they are words that destroy or words that break down or tear apart. But the majority of times when God speaks and God uses words, it is to create and to recreate and to edify and to encourage and and to lift people up. Uh, So I like straight talkers just like you do, but straight talkers doesn't give us any permission to tear down other people in any kind of way. You've got to learn how to bridle the tongue or your religion's worthless. So that's where James starts. But let me show you a couple of other phrases real quick because these are phrases. I've read James, I don't know how many times. In James 1, 26 and 27, the next phrase I want you to focus in on is to care for widows and orphans. But that that phrase to care for, Uh, this is a Greek word. If you go to that next slide, I have it up um, up on the slide for you. Uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. I took three and a half years of Greek, all right? But my Greek is not that great. And I'm sitting in the presence of people who teach Hebrew and Greek, all right? So you can see the word up there on, this, on, on the screen. But when, I, when you see the word to care for, and I, I think this is so important, you should write some of these definitions in your Bible or take notes if you don't write in your Bible. Because this phrase to care for means to, to make careful inspection of. And what this phrase means is to go see a person with helpful intent. Now this is a lot deeper than to care for people and that you pray for them from a distance or uh, to care for people and that you um, offer up a care package every once in a while, which I'm not knocking care packages. they can bless people. But the kind of care for that you read in James 1 is more than just supporting a mission effort from afar. It is for us to care about the things of God means we take We make inspection of the things around us where people are hurting, people are oppressed, there are injustices, what's going on in the lives of people, what questions are they wrestling with, what are are the circumstances in life that are keeping them pressed down and how do we step into that. So it's to take careful inspection. It is not just giving lip service, it's actually looking at a situation or a person and then begin asking questions of how we take action and what we see. All right, so to care for orphans and widows then was to take really careful inspection of what's going on and what does this mean for the church. <laughs> and then, <clears throat> excuse me, there's this phrase that I had missed until just a few months ago. That to care for orphans and widows isn't where it stops. It's not just a period after orphans and widows or a comma. It, it, there's, there's something really specific there and it is to care for them in their distress. I had just kind of read over that for a long time. And then I was doing a, a little research. If you go to that next slide, this, this phrase, in their distress, it is trouble that inflicts. It's trouble that causes distress. Some, some people translate this as destruction. It is to care for them in their distress, in their destruction. And the reason the church can do this is because Jesus cared for you in your destruction. It's because Jesus stepped into your mess to help redeem you out of, out of your own mess. So when it comes to the way James talks to the church of how you take care of orphans and widows, it's not just caring for them, it's you care for them in their distress, in their brokenness, in their, in their destruction, in their mess, you step into it. Now, James one twenty six and 27 ends with, this is all to keep you from being polluted by the world. And if you take seriously what it means to bridle a tongue and to care for people, to make careful inspection and to enter into people's distress, it's living out the gospel that keeps you from being polluted by the ways of the world. Um, and at least for me, like I, I think sometimes there are weeks where I choose what I'm going to preach on and then there are other weeks where maybe a passage chooses me. And with this being Stand Sunday... Uh, I think it was really vital for me to have God kind of reintroduce me or take me back into what what the heart of God is about, that God cares for those in our society who are in their distress. And God's calling the church to go into these places. Um, But what what I want to do just for a moment, and I'm sitting down because there are times where I I feel like if I sit down, it's more like a conversation, even though I'm the only one talking right now. Uh, Because I want to help just for a moment to help the church see some of the challenges that we're facing in our culture right now. Uh, Things that are keeping the church from being the church. We're coming out of an election season. It's my fourth election season to preach through, and every election season creates challenges to how we live out the gospel. Um, Back in May, I preached the sermon in in which I I used the phrase, there is such thing as PESD, post-election stress disorder. That there are therapists who do a lot more counseling November, December after an election season. Uh, sometimes their load goes up. And, and here's why because sometimes it's whoever, uh, it, people who put all this energy and time into uh, the election, they're constantly watching the news and, and watching the debates, and they're given so much time and energy that even if their side wins, they're, they're struggling how to rechannel passion and energy into life because they've been giving something to something else. So sometimes it's the winners who are struggling with how to, to re engage society, but then there are those who feel deflated. And, and what is happening? And are our, our voices uh, being heard? Um, and to me, what I want to mention just for a moment and talk about is just what does this mean for the church? Because we, we embrace this reality. We have a new president who will come in in January. And what does it mean for the church to be the church and to be faithful? Here are some of the challenges, all right? Um, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. Um, Many of these people are working out of the very best understanding of the gospel that they have. They have a love for Jesus, and they want the best for this country. 88% of African Americans voted democratic they voted for hillary many of them working out the best understanding of the gospel that they have want what's best for the country Uh, so there's some of these realities we have to face and be willing to ask okay what questions are driving people what issues are important to people and what does it mean for me not just to talk about others but to talk to others to see where they're coming from in life uh, but I think it's important for the church to take seriously maybe a couple of other stats. Uh, only a third of millennials, people between the age of 18 and 29, voted for Trump. Only a third of them. That doesn't mean that two-thirds voted for Hillary, uh, 55% did, and then there were some who chose to vote for a third party. But you have a third of 18 to 29-year-olds who voted a certain way. And what is it that's driving you? And then the one that I, wanna, that I think should be really important for the church is that 26% of those who claim to be religiously unaffiliated, however you want to describe that term, whether that's unchurched, uh, lost, they don't have relationships with Jesus, the, the phrase it's used uh, that they check is religiously unaffiliated, 26% of them voted for Trump, which means three-fourths of them didn't. Uh, I've been, I I guess, blessed that over the last week, over the last few weeks, I've been invited into certain circles where I get to hang out with what I would call white evangelicals. I've been invited into meetings with black church leaders. I've been invited into certain other meetings where a lot of times I'm just a fly on the wall and I'm hearing what's the questions that are driving people and questions that, that, that people are asking. And one thing that I don't think I have to argue much for is that we live in a place where there's a lot of division. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of bitterness. And for a long time, I would describe it as there is a wedge between the church and culture. There's a wedge between some churches and other churches. But this past week, as I reflect more and more on what's going on in our country and in the lives of Christians and culture, it's not a wedge, it's a chasm. It's not just a small little division. It's a chasm. Uh, And I think this should matter how we pray, how we engage the world, how we take seriously what our challenges are, and what it means to live out the gospel. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, it means you have entered into a covenant with Jesus. And where there is a covenant doesn't mean there's not conflict. And when conflict comes, as people rooted in a covenant, we don't resist and push away and move away from conflict. We remain engaged in conflict to see how God's going to redeem. Does this make sense at all? When I'm leading people through premarital counseling, every once in a while they'll say, uh, we love each other a lot, we're just going to love each other, and we're never going to fight. And I'm like, uh, well, let's sit down, because apparently we've got a lot of premarital counseling to do. Because the goal of a marriage isn't to have a marriage where you never fight. It's that you learn how to engage in conflict. You learn how to fight in a way that still honors who you are. And what happens in society sometimes is you have two groups of people or just people who they differ on something and instead of getting together and talking and have a mutual respect and continue to live life close to each other this this resistance causes greater tension and distance and the further people get away from each other then they're forming groups that are against another group and then it turns into like verbal missiles that they're tossing at one another and who knows where this escalates to but how does the gospel keep us rooted in a covenant where we're not afraid to engage in whatever conflict uh, is in front of us. So um, I'm not as interested in life as the church um, penetrating government as I'm interested in the church investing in people so that the gospel is penetrating hearts. Uh, I'm not as interested because I don't think think the Christian message is from the top down. Like we've got to get the Christian message and the government so then it can trickle down uh, because I don't think God works that way. Because what God did in Jesus is God came down to the ground to be on the same level as people to spread his mercy that way. Um, and I'm not as interested who is running the government. If I'm in here taking the bread and the cup with you, it's not who's running the government. It's how does the church live and how do we respond and how do we engage? Uh, So I've been with a couple of groups over the last couple of weeks in which sometimes I'm with this one group and kind of what they say is something like this, is um, how could you care about health care or women's rights yet not care about the unborn in the womb? And that's a pretty good question, isn't it? And then I'll sit with another group of people and I'm hearing them process life and the election and things going on in the country. And what they will say is, how can you care about the unborn in the womb, yet not care about education reform or orphan care or, or health care? And that's a pretty good question too, right? Because I thought about this on myself. I, I, I don't like abortion. I don't, think God, I don't think it's part of God's plan. I don't think God smiles on it. But I also don't think God wants the church to stand up to get babies into the world, yet then treat them as if they've been aborted, as if we don't care for them once they're born. So to care about kids coming into the world means that we also should care about kids being able to read and do math and learn social skills and how to engage and make it through life. It means the church should be the place that is screaming to the world that if you're a single mother, we are here to raise a child for you, with you, beside you. And and, and instead, what you have is a lot of people who don't see the church in that kind of way. There are a lot of people outside of the church who don't trust the church? They don't trust us. They, they're people who see the church now and they see the church as irrelevant, out of place, and people who are interested in monologue, not, di- not dialogue. And I think we can do better than this. These are not times for the church to resist, they're times for the church to engage like never before. Because what I want us to be concerned about today is that if there are places in our culture, in our society, in our neighborhoods, where trust has been broken, what does it mean for us to live in a way that we help repair trust? Um, I'm not OK being a part of how God's leading the church. I'm not OK with the only conversions we have being kids who are raised in the church. And I'm not downplaying those. I Man, we celebrate them. I think the heavens rejoice just as much for the kids in this church who were raised in families in this church. But I'm not okay with that because the mission Jesus gave us was so much greater. It's to engage the world. It's to spread love. It's to it's to seek and save the lost. And until we learn, until Christians learn how to stand on a conviction while also walking to whoever the other person is that you need to help point to Jesus or reconcile with, the gospel of Jesus is going to be hindered. And I'm not downplaying the work of God and what God can do. Uh, It's that I think God would look in the eyes of a lot of Christians, and I guess I don't want God coming to me someday and being like, why in the world are you standing on one or two convictions, yet you're not walking into the world to live out the mission? Quit standing still on a conviction and engage the world for Jesus. Um, So I, I guess if I call anyone to a place of prayer and reflection today, it's this. The only way we're able to step into the mess of other people around us is because Jesus is willing to step into our mess. And while some of us struggle to step into whatever the distress is around us while some of us struggle with it is because we haven't allowed God to deal with the own mess in our lives. And until we surrender some of our mess, we're not going to have the courage to step into other people's mess. Let's be a church that is sold out to the mission of God, no matter what. Uh, can we bow our heads? God, every time I stand up on this stage, I want to speak words that are helpful, hopeful, God-honoring. So if I've spoken any words this morning that didn't honor your heart, your character, your mission, may those words die, fall to the ground, be trampled and not be remembered by a single person. But if I spoke words that are true, may they be words that sink deep into hearts, that challenge us, inspire us, mess with us, call us to be a certain kind of people this week. God, you call us multiple times to pray for our leaders. So I pray this morning, we pray for, for the Obamas. We pray for the Trumps. We pray for leaders in Washington, in our states, on, on every level. We just lift them up to you. And God, my, just a prayer, I guess the cry of my heart is that when they wake up in the morning, that you will reveal to them something about your character your nature that you will point them deeper and deeper into the ways of jesus that they may be able to see him more clearly Uh, and god in this room today where we need you to deal with our mess open our eyes and give us the courage to dive into it so that you can help redeem us from it and if there are places where we are struggling to live as people with courage and boldness come with your power to wake us up and give us a vision of where it is you're leading us in courage and boldness to follow you wherever it may be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to ask our prayer leaders, if you will, go to your places. We have shepherds who are going to be in the front. They're in the back. We have prayer leaders who are here to receive you. If Those of you who are praying, if you'll move, I want people to see where you are this morning. We're going to sing a couple of songs. Um, and if there's something you want to bring in front of this church for prayer. Rick Gillespie's up here to my right uh, to receive you. Can we stand and let's sing these songs as we give devotion to our God?